Welcome to Navarro Live. I'm Michael Walker and I'm joined this evening by Nihal Al-Assar. Nihal, um, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Michael. A pleasure to have you on again. And we've got lots of important stories tonight. We're talking about Rishi Sunak's really quite grotesque um, new bill, um, which he thinks will stop the boats coming across the channel, but also seems to be against international law. Um, we have some original reporting actually on the asylum crisis. We're talking about Matt Hancock, Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, all the big names are in there. None of them look good, I promise you. First story. Rishi Sunak has announced his plans to bring forward new legislation to stop small boat channel crossings. And the right-wing press is lapping it up. This was today's headline in the Express. Ending channel migrant crisis can win election. Um, so that's clearly the headline of a newspaper that is interested in um, the, the actual human rights issues of asylum law also seems a little bit delusional to me. The details of the plan haven't yet been announced, but the Times was briefed the broad strokes in advance, and it reports this. The Prime Minister and his Home Secretary will reveal legislation that will make all asylum claims from those who come to the UK on small boats inadmissible, placing a duty on Braverman to remove, as soon as reasonably practicable, anyone who has come to the UK on small boats to Rwanda or another safe third country. They will be barred from claiming asylum while in the UK, and once removed, they will be permanently banned from returning. At present, asylum seekers have the right to remain in the country to have their case heard. What the Tories are calling the Illegal Immigration Bill is set to be introduced to Parliament by Suella Braverman on Tuesday. It's also said to contain a clause which would act as a, quote, rights break, stopping asylum seekers from using human rights law to challenge deportation orders. Sunak has said this. Since becoming Prime Minister, he says, I have made the issue of illegal migration one of my top five priorities, pledging to stop the boats once and for all. Illegal migration is not fair on British taxpayers, it is not fair on those who come here legally, and it is not right that criminal gangs should be allowed to continue their immoral trade. I am determined to deliver on my promise to stop the boats, so make no mistake, if you come here illegally, you will not be able to stay. Now, it goes without saying that according to international law, people who make an asylum claim are not illegal migrants, no matter how often the government pretend they are. But the bill is clearly designed to make that rhetoric a reality. Fortunately, it doesn't seem very likely to succeed. One former Tory minister told The Guardian this. The proposals, if you believe the briefings and the leaks, are a joke and I just cannot see how they will get onto the statute. They look like an attempt to go into the general election with some clear blue water between us and Labour, propose a hardline law, have it stopped by the EU and the courts, blame lefty lawyers and Labour for being soft on immigration. The idea that the governments under Boris Johnson and Theresa May just failed to see this easy fix of circumventing laws with another law without years of legal wrangling just doesn't wash. David Normington is a former permanent secretary to the Home Office. He told Times Radio what he thought of the government's proposals. I'm highly sceptical. Um, obviously, the government's going to announce this um, during the coming week. And we just have the reports in the Times and elsewhere at the moment. But it looks very difficult to me. If you have a system where processing claims is a problem, where returning people who are failed asylum seekers is a problem, where you don't have enough space to detain people, I really don't see how um, the Prime Minister's objectives are going to be achieved. Obviously, he's going to pass some legislation first, and there may be more to it than we have heard. But unless you manage the system properly, the legislation will be ineffective. Actually, none of us want asylum seekers to get into small boats and suffer the dangers of coming across the channel. And if he could find a way of stopping that. Uh, that would be a major gain for everyone, including uh, for him. The obvious way of stopping small boat crossings is to open more safe routes, something the government has repeatedly failed to do. On BBC Breakfast, that wasn't a topic Science and Technology Secretary Michelle Donnellan wanted to discuss. If you are, for example, Iranian, fearing persecution, what is the legal route to come to this country? Look, as I've said, we will be opening up more safe routes. We've taken 480,000 people since 2015. We have a record on this of, of protecting people in cases of need. We can't take everybody. That is a basic principle here. 
But if we look at what we're tackling this week, we're tackling people that are coming here illegally. That, as I said before, um, many of those people have travelled through a number of safe countries before they even make that journey to the UK. That's not okay. We've got to close down that route, uh, not just for the interests of British citizens, but also for the interests of those people that make that very, very dangerous route. And of course, uh, criminal gangs are exploiting them in their process of doing so. Forgive me, I I'm struggling to, to hear the answer to this question. What is the legal route if you are Iranian, fearing persecution and want to come to this country? I'm not going to get into the specifics of country X to, to country here. What I've said is there are sub-safe routes available. We've taken 480,000 people How does since somebody who desperately needs help answer it? And we're opening up. Well, look, look, I think that that is uh, grossly unfair. I'm not the immigration minister. As you know, I'm the science, technology uh, and innovation secretary uh, of state. And that isn't the point here. The point is that we are tackling illegal immigration. We are going to open up other safe routes, as I've said various times on this show today. But we do need to tackle illegal immigration. You know, those boats are not filled with people coming from, uh, from countries that desperately need help. And many times they're filled with people that are actually economic migrants um, and also been exploited by criminal gangs who take their money uh, in a, on a very perilous journey. That's something that we've got to stop. We've got to get a grip of. Um, and that's what we're doing this week. So you don't know? I didn't say, I don't know, I said there are a variety so of different routes. I'm not here um, as an immigration lawyer to go through. Look, look, I think, you know, I'm not here as an immigration lawyer to go through specific case by case uh, processes that an individual could follow. I'm also not an immigration lawyer, but I can help you out, Michelle. There are zero, zero safe routes for people fleeing Iran to the UK. There are only safe routes for people from Ukraine, Hong Kong and Afghanistan. And the one from Afghanistan is barely functional. That's why you still get lots of Afghans coming over on small boats. That was all a point Labour's Wes Streeting made on Sky News. They keep on going after these headline-grabbing gimmicks that won't work. I mean, take this proposal that anyone arriving via small boats should be given a blanket ban. Well, firstly, how are they going to identify these people for the future? They're going to tattoo their foreheads saying, not welcome in Britain, so that we recognise that they come back under a different name. I don't think so. Secondly, we know that there have been people who've come via small boats from Afghanistan, even though there's meant to be a safe route, who are veterans who have fought for this country. Are we going to say, oh, sorry, mate, I know you fought for Britain, but back you go because you've come via a small boat. And sometimes, I know it's not as exciting as the headlines the government's trying to create, but getting the processes right is important. I mean, the fact that we've only had 22 people come via... Um, the Afghan resettlement scheme pathway too, compared to eight and more than eight and a half thousand who've come via small boats, tells us that the systems the government are putting in place aren't working and they should roll their sleeves up and focus on solving the problem rather than generating headlines in the hope that voters will be duped into thinking the okay. government after 13 years are going to get this right. Now, what do you make of this particular story? Do you think this is just Sunak going after headlines or do you think there are people in his team who actually think this can work, that they can actually just go against all international law and hope for the best, I suppose? Well, in my opinion, Sunak is clearly escalating the war on refugees and um, stoking the xenophobia in order to stoke further division, hatred and fear and get people to focus on a fabricated external enemy rather than this avoidable economic crisis that we're currently having. Um, at a time of inflation, an extraordinary increase in the cost of living, stagnating wages, a crisis in the rental market, and so on and so forth, this is what he's choosing to focus on. Um, the Tories are desperately stepping up their attack on refugees and asylum seekers and criminalizing people fleeing war to detract from the fact that they're not going to take any action to alleviate um, this economic crisis or, that we're having and or make um, the situation better. And like you said, Michael, we must remember three things. Um, that firstly, under international law, it is not illegal to cross the channel and that refugees are not invaders and they're not illegal. Anyone has the right to apply for asylum in any country that signed the 1951 convention. Amidst all of this stoking of fear, um, 
last year, approximately 79.5 million refugees were forced to flee their homes. And for its share, Britain only took around 20,000 refugees, which is approximately 0.026% of this number. So it logically doesn't make sense to be having this public meltdown over this. Like I said, I think it is a plan to make you focused on this external threat and um, distract you from the fact that the prime minister is not willing to do anything to address or roll back some of these rising costs. Um, and as was mentioned before, of course, this is um, a strategy that could be a hardline view that could be used in the next general election to separate him from Starmer. And of course, I blame Starmer and the Labour Party for this as well. If the Labour Party keeps moving right with them, then this will keep getting worse, in my opinion, because they're not unchallenged at all. Um, Starmer, the former quote-unquote human rights lawyer, is on LBC every week um, mimicking Tory reactionary lines on migration. Uh, we saw that, for example, his only objection to the Rwanda deportation agreement was not that it was illegal, not, not that it was inhumane, uh, but that it was too expensive. Um, again, like the only thing he knows how to do is uh, keep saying this, uh, keep, you know, cranking up this law and order rhetoric. Uh, we need to, you know, clamp down on illegal migration, on smugglers, but there's no, like you said, Michael, there's no discussion of safe and legal routes and processes. Uh, it's not even an option. We are going to move on to a similar story on the same topic, another area where the government is failing on asylum policy. Usually, when we hear about asylum seekers in hotels, it's when people are protesting outside of them. But what happens when asylum seekers housed in hotels mount protests of their own? That's a reality currently in play at a hotel in Greenwich in South London. There, 37 men, mostly from Syria, Afghanistan, Eritrea and Iran, are protesting their proposed transfer to suburban Bedfordshire. The men have been protesting their removal since last month after 90 fellow residents were moved with only a few hours notice. Those remaining have now faced down three attempts to remove them. Earlier, my colleague Stephen Meffen went to speak to some of the men staying at the hotel, some of whom have been there for 18 months. This is Mohammed, not his real name, explaining why they don't want to move. I'm studying here like uh, one year in a college and uh, if I just study for one more term, I will have a certificate and I can work with them because I have a degree from my country and uh, I can work legal here. Uh, I need to have a, this certificate of language, uh, but uh, when I work in a charity uh, and I try to help people, I'm a volunteer there. and. Uh, I mean, I have, I go to my community, Kurdish community sometimes. Uh, I make, uh, I made friends here. But uh, when you, when I told them I have this condition, let me stay here because I can't go to Donostville and start from zero again. Uh, they told, no, you need to go because uh, it's a order from our company. and. Uh, we, we, we just need to, you know, uh, tell you and you have to go. So that seems pretty important. You've got someone who's fled persecution and against the odds has managed to build something of a life here. He's studying and volunteering, but that will all be threatened, all undermined if he has to move. But backed by local councillors, organisers and the community, the men are holding out. And that's despite the hotel using some pretty underhand tactics to make their lives even more miserable, as Hussein here explained. 90 people were moved in February and you guys are staying behind, refusing to move. How have you been treated by the staff in that time? Um, the, the way they treated us changed. Um, it's like we are in prison now. Um, we don't feel security. So every time we go out, every time we go in, it's like we're going into prison. Um, the way they feed us, um, they're giving us some type of food with no taste 
um, some people has some medical medical issues with this sort of food they're giving us. Um, it's such an awful treatment. Yeah, we heard stories about them threatening to lock you out of your rooms, that kind of thing. Has that has that been happening? Um, so many times. Um, I'm sleeping in my room and wondering if I'm going to wake up when the next day in the same room or not. They coming every day, knocking our rooms to go out. Like we're living, uh, wondering, are we going to be here tomorrow or no? Now, it's important to know, it's not just the fact that these men have spent a year and a half building a life in South London that makes the men want to stay. We all remember the scenes from the far-right inflamed protest outside of a hotel in Knowsley last month. And the hotel in Bedfordshire, that's where they're supposed to be sent, has now been targeted by the far-right too. It's been named in a patriotic alternative leaflet, resulting in local residents harassing the asylum seekers. The Guardian has reported that asylum seekers have said they are afraid to leave the hotel because local people have been filming them when they go for a walk in the park. So the Guardian write this, The hotel in the Bedfordshire town housing the asylum seekers who come from countries including Yemen, Eritrea and Syria has been the focus of protests by hundreds of local people. And the far-right group Patriotic Alternative has carried out a leafleting campaign naming the hotel and carrying the slogan, You Pay, Migrants Stay. They are recording us everywhere we go in the park, one asylum seeker told The Guardian. We thought in the UK we would have a better life, but nothing has changed. We don't go outside most of the time. We are in a dangerous situation. We are in risk. The man in the clip we're about to show you is reportedly a member of Patriotic Alternative. He's speaking at a public meeting held in a Dunstable church. It's very telling that a lot of the conversation tonight seems to be around the hotel. Um, but if let's not beat around the bush, okay? Everybody, I think, can agree with me that the biggest concern is uh, everybody's welfare and safety. Now, don't take us for fools when you say that these people are refugees. We know they are illegal migrants. If these people were refugees, what are they fleeing from? It's very telling that we're never told what they are fleeing from. What wars are they fleeing from? What countries are they coming from? What are they fleeing? What persecution? We don't know. So we know that they're, by definition, illegal immigrants, which technically makes them criminals, and they should be treated as such. They shouldn't be put up in five-star hotels. They should be in cells and they should be told they are not leaving until they pay for their ticket back. So my question to you is, not where are you going to shift them to in a year's time, how are you going to remove them from the country? And don't give me an excuse that, oh, there's the UN uh, refugee document that we signed, or it's the European Court of Human Rights. We voted for Brexit. This is supposed to be a sovereign country. You could easily withdraw from any of those agreements, but you don't. Your party has failed time and time again. In 2010, David Cameron said he was going to get immigration down. How did that work out? We've got higher levels than Tony Blair. And it was his intention to flood this country with migrants on purpose. These people, not all of them, but some of them are going to go on to commit egregious crimes. Rape, theft, murder. And there was a reason why the other day there was that ruckus in Kirksby. And we all know why it was. Because a migrant was harassing a young girl. That is going to happen in Dunstable. It's going to happen in every single part of the country. So you can see why people might not want to be sent to a hotel in Dunstable, right? Because this is a place where, I mean, we've talked about this on previous shows, right? You've got far-right activists who are trying to inflame the situation, but also you've got an area where a disproportionate number of asylum seekers have been housed in, in, in hotels in a rather small town, right? So you can imagine if you're in Greenwich, very diverse, very large place. You know, in in London, you don't notice if a few hundred people have been put up in a hotel because there are people everywhere. You know, that's not going to change in any way um, the the nature of the town as you walk around it. But if you put asylum seekers all concentrated in these hotels in small towns, which aren't particularly ethnically diverse, then you can see how that becomes a sticking point, how far-right activists end up having uh, an issue that they can organize around. And I can see exactly why, as an asylum seeker, I would dread being moved there if I'm currently building a life in, in, in South London. 
it's also worth noting a lot of those points just completely untrue. I mean, we could do, we could probably do a whole episode on debunking all of them, but just a few related studies shown very little or no link between migration and increased crime. Of course, we do know where these people are fleeing from. The House of Commons Library report this in 2021, 42% were nationals of Middle Eastern countries, which was the highest proportion and number ever recorded. This was the result of a large number of applicants from Iran, Iraq and Syria. The next largest regional groupings of nationalities were African, Asian and European. Around 4% of main applicants were from countries in the Americas, Oceania and other parts of the world. The picture in 2022 was different with 31% of asylum seekers being of Asian nationalities and 24% being nationals of European countries. Nationals of Middle Eastern and African countries made up 23% and 17% of the total respectively. So uh, we know where these people are coming from and it's clear Syria and Iraq recovering from wars, Iran is a repressive regime and the change in 2022 to larger European migration is a result of the war in Ukraine. So the idea, where are these people coming from? Where could they possibly, they're coming from war zones and places where people are persecuted, right? It's, it's not a mystery. You don't have to do much research. I'm not sure that fellow speaking in that meeting had done his own. And one of the men who was moved to Dunstable, so this is someone who was in that hotel in South London, now has been moved to Dunstable. He has spoken to Navarra Media. When he first arrived, he wanted to explore the area and planned to go to church. Now he is afraid to leave the hotel. After a protest two weeks ago in which far-right activists alleged asylum seekers would kidnap children, he said concerned staff warned them to be careful if they went outside and not to stay out late. When you go outside, people are observing you. They might capture a photo of you or judge you from your face or skin colour, he said, adding that he felt twice as depressed since the move. It's been almost a week that I haven't been out of my room. It's just causing untold pain and suffering to people who have already been through a lot of pain and suffering, right? Unbelievably irresponsible, unbelievably cruel, I think, and callous, right? London is definitely big enough to house a bunch of asylum seekers in hotels. Obviously, we shouldn't be housing people in hotels for 18 months. We should be letting people build their own lives. But the idea that it's a good idea to move people from South London, where they built lives, to a small, not ethnically diverse town where there are members of the far right organizing, that is, you know, it's more than irresponsible. I think it's, it's, it's dangerous, it's callous, it's provocative, it's just awful on every level. Some people, though, are making money. The situation here is made complex because there are multiple chains of privatization that keep the asylum seekers at arm's length from the Home Office and refugee organizations. The Home Office appears to have subcontracted responsibility to a company called Clear Springs Ready Homes Limited. Now, despite being mired in multiple controversies over poor refugee accommodation and indeed deaths, they doubled their profits last year. In turn, Clear Springs seem to have subcontracted the running of the hotel to a separate company, Stay Beldevere Hotels Limited. Stay Beldevere Hotels Limited have themselves been accused of illegally detaining asylum seekers staying in hotels they manage, and the hotel itself is owned by yet a third private company. For some more context on this story, take a listen to Salma Shah. She's an organiser working with the refugee charity Revoke. It hasn't been the Home Office that's asked these asylum seekers to move, but actually um, Clear Springs Ready Homes, who are contracted by the Home Office and who are in charge of the hotel that these asylum seekers are staying in. Um, they haven't been given any letter, any formal letter from the Home Office, which they usually are entitled to when they're being asked to move from their accommodation. How has the hotel responded to their their refusal to go to Dunstable. A lot of the asylum seekers are being threatened by hotel staff that they'll be made homeless, um, their key card access will be changed um, so they won't be able to enter their rooms um, if they refuse to yeah, move. They've built community here. They have friends here, families here. They're part of different organizations that support them. And we have specialist organizations within London um, that don't exist outside of London that support their specific needs. Um, there's, you know, someone who's a wheelchair uh, user. Some of them are part of colleges. Um, they're studying for GCSEs, for A-levels, and all of this will be disrupted if they're moved. There's been uh, racial attacks on asylum seekers, outside asylum seeker hotels across the country. And the asylum seekers in this hotel are fearful that this is what they'll be subjugated to if they um, are moved. In recent years, there's been a rise in suicide attempts by asylum seekers. 
And um, our concerns are that if asylum seekers are not given a choice as to where they, you know, may may live when they've built communities after, you know, everything they've experienced has finally started to build communities and some sort of um, safety network. When they're torn away from that, how will that then impact their their mental well-being? That was Salma Shah, a caseworker at Revoke. We've also got a um, a comment from Anthony Okakere. He's the leader of Greenwich Council. And in a statement to Navarro Media, he said this, the recent actions of the Home Office for removing asylum seekers against their wishes is deplorable. By the time we were notified, the removal of people was already underway. This raises significant concerns over the way the Home Office works with local authorities to ensure the safety and well-being of refugees and asylum seekers in our borough and beyond. No one should be worrying about how they will survive the next month with the added fear of being displaced and uprooted from an area they have made their home without their consent or considering their needs. Now, I think this it's just makes it even more obvious than it already is why moving these people is such a disastrous move. You've got the leader of a council, so clearly he's going to be responsive to his constituents, right? And he thinks moving these asylum seekers was a mistake. He's saying, look, they, they, they were staying in Greenwich. They were using um, some services here, presumably if they're getting um, education, they're volunteering, so they're also giving back to the community. Why are you pushing these people away? And as we've showed you in a previous clip, where they're going in Bedfordshire, Dunstable, you've got people getting huge rounds of applause in, in, in meetings, challenging um, local politicians to say, why are all these people coming here? So, so you're moving people from a place where, you know, it seems that they're made relatively welcome to a place where they're not welcome. And, and again, this is not just because people are headbanging racists, because, well, some of them are. I mean, that guy who gave that speech probably is. But the issue here is if you concentrate people in non-diverse areas where it's very noticeable that you've concentrated a bunch of vulnerable people, that's going to be more contentious than if you house people in city centres, which are already very diverse and which are already, you know, large and, and, and crowded, and it is much easier to integrate. Now, there's so much in this story. I suppose, in a way, I want to ask you, and it's, it's so rare to, to hear a story about resistance from people in these situations, because normally, you know, when we talk about these protests outside asylum hotels, these are just sort of like passive people who we just imagine are sort of terrified and not having much agency of their own. It's interesting to hear sort of people say, no, we won't be moved. We're going to, you know, stand our ground here. Obviously, all the odds are against them. But I mean, what do you make of this story? There's always this expectation that refugees and asylum seekers have no rights and should be great, just grateful to be here. Even a few, uh, you know, even hostages who are kidnapped have rights, right? We've come to this point where we have to regularly emphasize the humanity of migrants and refugees in order to humanize them. Uh, Schrodinger's migrant, right? They have to be superhuman, but they have to be helpless at the same time. They have to be volunteering for charities, you know, saving children from burning buildings or being economically useful in some way in order to be granted some sort of humanity. And it still doesn't work most of the time. Um, I mean, it, it's no coincidence that um, the protests and the attacks against the asylum seekers are happening in tandem with the Rishi Sunak build. Um, those protesting and those who create the conditions for this to happen kind of are existing in this like mutually reinforcing vicious cycle that will continue to happen um, unless something drastic changes. If you head to navarromedia.com, you can read more about this story in this report by my colleague Charlotte England. The link to that is also in the description box below. It can seem hard to find a bigger tit in British politics than Matt Hancock. But this weekend, one made himself known. He's called Jonathan Code. Joining me to discuss this is none other than media and crisis PR lawyer Jonathan Code, who was actually recently asked to act for Matt Hancock. Thank you for joining me. Yes, I have to say that's disappointing because I made it absolutely clear to your programme. I asked them not to disclose that. And that is very, very poor journalism. OK, well, it seems like, uh, I mean, are you OK to carry on or is that the kind of thing that means you don't want to carry on? No, I'm going to apologize it doesn't mean I, the... I'll go around because I, I disagree with what a lot of you say, but you've... You've stood there in front of a baying audience throwing poo left, right and centre at Man Matt Hancock when your own television station has engaged in correspondence with me where I explained 
that that one you know I'm in a position to be able to comment on this and mention that I'd been approached by Matt Hancock. I asked you not okay. to mention that. Well, and I apologise that we've. So I apologise anybody, anybody's tempted to take you seriously or your programme seriously, here's a good reason well, not well, to. in this moment, I can apologise for including that information. I've just been given the actual email that you sent to my producer, which they'd like me to read out, um, as a courtesy to the lady who approached me to act for MH, Matt Hancock, I would be grateful if it was mentioned that he asked me to act for him. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it seems that you actually... That you're absolutely right that it's my mistake I missed out the knot. I take all of that back. My, abs, abs, my abject apologies. You're right and I'm wrong. No, fair, fair dues. I, I'm absolutely wrong about that. My apologies. That was Jonathan Code, a crisis and PR manager. Uh, if you work in crisis NPR, it's very important to recognise where to put a knot and where not to put a knot. Um, that was incredibly embarrassing. For his part, and I suppose to add even more confusion into the story, Matt Hancock has now denied that anyone from his team ever asked this man for his services. I doubt he will be getting them from now on, whatever the case, whatever was the truth. Um, of course, the reason Matt Hancock wants a lawyer in the first place is because the journalist Isabel Oakshot passed on all his WhatsApp messages to the Telegraph. She was also in a blockbuster interview this weekend. Here she is speaking to Kathy Newman, who wants to know why Oakshot gave her story to the Telegraph when she has a contract with rival organisation Talk TV. I'm just interested why you decided to go with the Telegraph when you do work for Talk TV, and you know that's in a you know a media organisation with it, other it, newspapers. If your focus is on this angle, I will terminate the interview now because this is not what I've come on here to talk about. Well, I'm talking about you hitting the headlines, and this is part of the story. But I mean, let's talk about my what my next. my my work arrangements are not part of the story. Actually, they're actually absolutely nothing to do with it. So you had, but you have no qualms about taking this story to the Telegraph. You're happy with how that went? I'm going to terminate the interview, okay? Well, this, is the last, this, this is this is my last warning, okay? I'm going to terminate the interview. I've not come on here to justify where the story was placed or how I chose to go about that. I've come but on you... here to talk about the story and, and the fact that you have started wheeling out inaccurate figures about my contract or any working arrangement I have had, I think that is frankly unprofessional. Well, let's talk, we're talking about your story that has hit the headlines. You no, you're not. Headlines. You're talking about my salary. That's what you've been talking about. Well, no, I'm not talking about what your salary anymore. You? I'm not what talking about your salary. Do, do you want to talk about your salary? I How want much to talk about pay? the story that has played out this week. I How much do you pay, you, Kathy? <laughs> I haven't hit the headlines. You've hit the headlines, Isabel. Well, maybe let's... if you broke some stories, you would. <laughs> Well, I've broken a couple of stories this week since you mentioned oh, it, but don't they? worry about that. I, I'm not going to go into that because I haven't hit that. Well, this is not me well, being no, interviewed on this. Stuff. Right. What I want to ask you, Isabel, is here we, here we are that you've ripped up an NDA to dump right. Matt Hancock in it. You dumped Vicky have... Price in it. Wait, let me finish. She ended up going to prison on the back of correspondence with you about speeding points. You based an unsubstantiated allegation that a former prime minister engaged in a sex act with a dead pig on a single source. You also published text messages and emails with the Leave.eu founder Aaron Banks, which were shared with you privately. What I want to ask you, Isabel, is how can any source trust you again? Well, Isabel Oakshot, I'm afraid, has terminated that interview. No, I don't have much sympathy for Isabel Oakeshott, raving right winger. And I think, you know, the, the reason she has leaked these messages to the Telegraph is because she wants, she, you know, she has a very clear agenda. So do the Telegraph. They want people to say, oh, the lockdown was all wrong. COVID wasn't as serious as, as everyone made out. It was just politicians trying to scare you. I mean, scientists making stuff up. I mean, I suppose they, I should say that they haven't said scientists have made stuff up, but that, that's the general impression. Um, I, I, I get the sense that they are trying to give. They have an obvious agenda. But in that interview, I was on Isabel Oakeshott's side. I mean, one, because she's hilarious. She said, well, I'm asking you these questions because you're in the headlines. Well, maybe you'd be in the headlines if you broke some stories. It's like, very good comeback. And her point, I think, was absolutely right. Why do Kathy Newman's listeners on talk, or sorry, on Times Radio, which is Murdoch-owned, care that Isabel Oakeshott has a contract with Talk TV, also Murdoch-owned, as a commentator, and then gave a story to The Telegraph instead, right? Who cares? It's the most 
insular media bubble gotcha I could possibly imagine. Um, and I think Kathy Newman ended up looking a lot sillier than Isabel Oakeshott did there. Even if Isabel Oakeshott comes up across as more of a an odd character, let's say. At least she, you know, she brings some interest to the story. Um, let's talk about these leaks, though. As I say, they don't seem as explosive to me as the Telegraph has been making out. They have an agenda, but they do show Matt Hancock to be pretty shameless in his desire for self-promotion. Now, this is a message from early on in the pandemic when promising news first emerged about the Oxford vaccine. So Matt Hancock is speaking to one of his closest aides at the time, Jamie Joku Goodwin. And Hancock begins by saying this, front pages on vaccine are unreal. You are totally right. I must own this. I need to meet this scientist who is at the same Oxford college I was at. And then the advisor says, yep, papers see it as the way out. They will forgive you for being in favour of lockdown if they think you are working night and day for a vaccine. They've also printed this exchange from January 2021. So that's when the medicines agency cut the time for approving new vaccines. So we'd all get them quicker. Now, it's between Hancock and his media advisor at the time, Damon Poole. And Hancock says this, send me the mail story. And then Damon Poole sends him um, the story of vaccine approval is finally cut from 20 days to five. Um, MHRA briefing in pretty sure that's one of the agencies that works these things out. And Matt Hancock says, weird, but isn't that good news? Is it true? Damon says, believe it's true, but they can't be blindsiding everyone. Um, and then Matt Hancock said, I called for this two months ago, all in capitals. This is a Hancock triumph. And if it is true, we need to accelerate massively. And then Damon Paul says, OK, Matt Hancock saying this is a Hancock triumph. Of course, while Hancock was keen to praise himself, some of those working with him were less impressed. Clive Dix was deputy chair of the vaccine task force for most of 2020. He would go on to be its chair when Kate Bingham resigned. So she got knighted for her services in that job. Now, Clive Dix has written this in The Telegraph. I worked with Matt Hancock the whole time I was at the vaccine task force, and he was, without doubt, the most difficult of all the ministers because he didn't take time to understand anything. He was all over the place, a bit like a headless chicken. He often made statements saying, we are going to do X and we want to let the world know about it. But we were dealing with an uncertain situation in bringing the vaccines forward. The manufacturing process was brand new and any process like this is fraught with problems, which we need to fix as we go along. But normally you would spend two or three years stress testing something like this. Hancock was laying down timelines by saying things like, we will vaccinate the whole population. And these timelines drove his behavior. And he goes on to say this, when we said that AstraZeneca vaccine had manufacturing problems, that is when Hancock panicked. He didn't believe us. We were working night and day to make it work. And he was turning around and saying, I have said the UK population will all get vaccinated. But we couldn't change the nature of the process. And he didn't get that. He thought it was like procurement. That is where his behavior came from. He panicked. And that led to them going to India and taking vaccines that had been meant for the developing world. I thought that ethically it was very wrong to take doses. This is Clive Dix talking. I thought that ethically it was very wrong to take doses that it had been agreed would go to the developing world just to meet an arbitrary timeline. This is why I ended up resigning, because I could no longer advise a government that acted on these terms. Now, I think what you'll find is, you know, in defense, Hancock might say, yes, I'm, you know, I'm an embarrassing guy. Sometimes if you look through WhatsApp, people say embarrassing things. But what I was doing is I was annoying the scientists by putting really ambitious targets that no one believed were possible. But then we drove them to meet those targets. This is what I did. And this is so great. That's undoubtedly how he would justify all of this. I think that statement from Clive Dix is quite important there, because basically what he's saying is, look, these, these arbitrary targets didn't just, you know, the consequence wasn't just that people sped up what they were doing if they did at all. What actually happened was to, to meet these arbitrary targets, we ended up diverting vaccines meant for the developing world to come to the UK, a rich country. You know? So, so I, I think that's quite powerful testimony from the former chair of the vaccine task force saying we, we had to make decisions, which I as a you know, as a scientist, as a, as a policymaker, thought was ethically incorrect because we were taking vaccines from poorer people to bring them to richer places to vaccinate people that needed to be vaccinated less urgently. And this was also Matt Hancock could get some good, good headlines. Um, I, I just want that one phrase from Matt Hancock again. What does he say? This is a Hancock. This is a Hancock triumph. The thick of it was a documentary. I think <laughs> like <laughs> every week there's a new episode. Actually. Um, this is all political, like pure political theater, isn't it? Um, like you said, I agree with what you said, that this is 
kind of feeding the lockdown skeptics and um, giving them what they want with this information. Uh, but the conspiracy theorist in me is um, wondering if um, this was leaked kind of on purpose. And this is my obviously my own opinion. Um, as a spin, like the leaks are a spin into an anti-lockdown narrative that um, with the purpose of explaining Britain's poor economic situation as being caused by the lockdown rather than other structural issues or long-term structural problems that have been the case since Thatcher. Um, Nearly every nation implemented some sort of lockdown um, and many of them have now begun um, to recover economically, but Britain has not. And um, explaining this away through the lockdown fails to account for the actual problems. Strange in that, like lots of the articles in this collection of lockdown files public, published by the Telegraph seem to consist of saying like, Boris Johnson knew that we didn't need a lockdown. And what they find is one message where Boris Johnson has read a comment piece, misunderstood it and said, are you sure we need to do this? Da, 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 da. Like he's misunderstood something. And then down the line, the scientific advisors say, no, you've misunderstood this. Right. So it's so that the headline should be Boris Johnson initially misunderstood something, but they keep giving it the headline. Boris Johnson knew lockdown wasn't needed. It was like, no, Boris Johnson was mistaken and then admitted he was mistaken a little bit too late, usually, because if you let the infections go out of control, as we talked about at the time, then you need to have a longer lockdown and more people die. So that's what happened. And I think the Telegraph are trying to rewrite history by using these WhatsApp messages in, in quite a cynical and opportunistic way, I think. But nonetheless, it's fun to laugh at Matt Hancock. Next story. Sue Gray has been appointed as Keir Starmer's chief of staff. It's a controversial move as Gray has been in charge of the Partygate reports that contributed to Boris Johnson's downfall. But Starmer has been out on the airwaves reassuring the country that nothing fishy has gone on. He, he's talking to LBC's Nick Ferrari. See if you're convinced. When did you first approach Sue Gray? To be your chief of staff, uh, uh, Nick. On the, I know her personally. I met her when I was director of public prosecution. She was obviously a senior uh, civil servant. I met a number of them. I was really, really impressed with her. So I've known her personally since then. She's not a friend. I don't mix with her. I'm not in the same social circles or anything like that. Um, she's. I know her personally in the sense that if I saw her at a reception or something, I would go over and have a discussion mm. um, with her. But as I say, I actually haven't had a discussion with her during the entire time she was doing her report. Might I ask thought, when you first approached her well, to be your chief of staff? I've been on the lookout for a chief of staff for a little while now. I'm very clear what I wanted in that. Um, and obviously, you know, Sue will set out that, but nothing improper um, at all. Um, I've been on the lookout for a chief of staff. I'm really pleased um, that people of her calibre are interested right. um, in that. Um, but, you know... So when did you approach, can I ask, when you approached Sue? Look, um, if I may call us, I've been looking for a chief of staff yes, for, yes, a, I, for a number of weeks now. I think October 2022, Sam White left you, if I've got Well, that that's when I lost, when, when Sam White moved yeah, on. At that yeah. stage, the first task I had for myself was being clear in my own mind what I wanted from a right. chief of staff because I was beginning to think about how so to do it. So I will try again, and obviously you don't have to answer, but yeah. when did you first contact Sue Gray about the possibility of becoming. Your uh, chief of staff. Well, Nick, that's going to be laid out by Sue. She's got to do that as part of a um, leaving procedure. But there's nothing improper um, at all. But you can't tell me that. Nick, nothing improper at all. I've no, been no, looking... no, but you can't tell me when you first approached her. I've been looking for a chief of staff for um, a little while now, um, but Sue will lay that out. Um, why, why won't but you But there's, there's nothing improper at no, all. No, 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 but just I'm sure why you won't tell me when you first made contact with her. I'm not going to go through lock, stock and barrel, but um, there's nothing improper. It's not unusual. But if it's not improper, I'm sorry to... If it's not improper, why won't you say... It was a month ago, Nick, or it was six weeks ago, Nick, or it was on New Year's Day. It was, it was, um, I've been looking for some time and um, there's nothing improper in the slightest. How many times can someone refuse to answer a question instead just saying there was nothing improper going on before we all start to wonder if maybe there was something improper going on? You know, it's a bit like it, it, the question on your T-shirt answers itself, you know, nothing improper is going on. It's not a great thing to just keep repeating over and over again while refusing to answer a question. Nihal, were you reassured by that performance? Are you convinced that nothing improper went on? <laughs> I think you can ask Keir Starmer what he had for dinner yesterday and he'll still manage to give you a convoluted, um, not straightforward answer at all that will inspire suspicions. It's pathological at this point. Like, he lies unprovoked, I think, uh, even when there's... 
evidence to the contrary. I mean, obviously, if he hadn't approached her before the report had been published, he would have said so. Uh, but it's just something to behold. The pivot, the stock responses, the, the evasiveness. Um, I've heard sensible centrists say that Keir Starmer is a good orator. Where? Do you see it, Michael? <laughs> I like the dinner point. You know, he so said, what did you have for dinner yesterday? Well, I'm not going to say, but I can confirm I didn't eat humans. What did you eat? Well, I'm not, I don't want to say exactly what I ate, but I can say I didn't, did not eat humans. Didn't eat anything illegal, in fact. Well, what did you eat? All, I, all I'm going to say is I didn't eat humans. I didn't eat anything. I didn't eat dogs either, actually. I didn't eat dogs. But what did you, just say my, just, just say what you had, babe. No, it's, not, it's, it's not a big deal. Final story. Boris Johnson, that great figure of honour and propriety, has decided to knight his father. That's right. It's time to get ready for Sir Stanley Johnson. The story was broken by the Times, who say Stanley Johnson is one of a hundred people nominated for titles in Boris Johnson's resignation honours. Interestingly, the Times doesn't suggest what Stanley Johnson would be knighted for, but reasons abound as to why he shouldn't get an honour. Caroline Noakes is a long-standing Tory MP who in 2021 said this on Sky News. I've had male MPs stick their hands on my backside in the strangers' bar. I can wind the clock back. And I can remember a really prominent man smacking me on the backside about as hard as he could and going, oh, Romsey, you've got a lovely seat. Oh, gross. Um, I'd have punched him in the face. And, oh, well, so, and that's, that's, my, that's my problem, is that who, I who didn't punch well, Stanley probably... Johnson in the face. It was Stanley Johnson. Stanley Johnson did that to me <laughs> okay. ahead of the 05 election. So it was Blackpool, I don't know what years, 2003. What did you do? I didn't do anything. And that, I feel ashamed by that. No, you shouldn't feel ashamed no, by that. You, because no, when I say I'd have punched him in the face, that's because I am... Uh, now, you probably would. Now, you now would probably, probably say something. Would. After Noakes made that revelation, someone else came forward. Political correspondent for the New Statesman, Alva Ray, said that Johnson had groped her at a party at Conservative Conference in 2019. Stanley Johnson, of course. Um, Stanley Johnson is also subject to allegations of serious domestic abuse. The journalist Tom Bauer wrote about his relationship to his first wife, Charlotte, who would go on to suffer a nervous breakdown. Bauer writes this. Over the years, Stanley has pleaded ignorance about the causes of his wife's depression. I never got to the bottom of it, he said in 2019. It was too complicated for me and a mystery. Charlotte corrects Stanley's recollection. The doctors at the Maudsley spoke to Stanley about his abuse of me. He had hit me, she recalls. He broke my nose. He made me feel like I deserved it. As I said, the Times doesn't state what would be the positive reason for giving Stanley Johnson a knighthood, but one would presume his long-standing commitment to environmentalism will eventually be cited. We can get a flavour of that in this interview from 2012. You have to get population under control as well, because if you look at it in sheer economic terms, how can you sustain increases in per capita income at a time when you have rising population without rising economic growth. Whereas if you have a declining um, population, which is what I would aim for, then of course even a stable economic growth situation will give you increases in per capita income. So that's where I stand on do you, that. Do you, do you have a sense of what the carrying capacity of Britain is or of the, uh, uh, of the world as a whole? Or? Well, Britain, I'd put it at 10 or 15 million. Um, I, mean, <laughs> I think that'd be absolutely fine. I mean, that would do us really splendidly. At, at, at a limit, 2025, 20, I think it's complete nonsense that we are now confronted with an islander, would you believe it, of 70 million, 70 million people. I wrote a paper, I think it's the only paper the Conservative Party has ever published, and it was published as an old Queen Street paper in, in June 1972, oddly enough, and it was called uh, Britain Needs a Population Policy. And, um, and you, you could still argue that today, I mean, right now. I certainly could, I certainly could, but what has happened, of course, is that we have all been, as it were, shunted aside, off, shunted off course by what you might call the rise of political correctness, because you can't talk about this now without being saying you're anti-feminist, because you're telling women what to do with their bodies, or you're racist, because you're saying it's the browns and the blacks and the yellow racists who mustn't have, um, have or you're left-winger, because you're really trying to get at you know, the capitalist society. So it's a very, very difficult one now. And I would say that at the very least, the governments of the world have to start talking, the government of this country has to talk, uh, start talking seriously about immigration. Because if you look at the rise in Britain's population now, you will see that, as it were, there is a really 
serious differential in the fertility of the immigrant population to the fertility of what you might call the indigenous population. So anyway, but this is, this, this is, this is very political stuff, not one for Guardian readers. That was Stanley Johnson talking about the black, brown and yellow races and saying immigrants have too many children. The same Stanley Johnson, we should say, who had six children himself and whose son Boris had another seven. The establishment is the same, be it Keir Starmer, be it Boris Johnson. They're making fun of you. They're laughing at your face. Uh, they lie without consequence. They make decisions in their little WhatsApp groups and they use their powers for ineptism. Um, this country is their playground. It belongs to them, not to you or to me. Um, we're pinching pennies here trying to pay our energy bills, but the focus, but uh, Boris Johnson is trying to make his father to give him a knighthood. Um, but anyway, other than that, this won't be the hill I die on. I'm not going to oppose publicly oppose this or anything, nor the battle I take up. The knighthood is an you know, order of the bloodstained British Empire. Let them have it if they want. Um, would you accept a knighthood, Michael? I wouldn't. I, I don't see. I'm, I don't think I'm going to get offered one. I like the disinterest in who gets one, though. Um, you did mention nepotism there. Talking of nepotism, this was Rachel Johnson's take on the news. Maybe he thought, my dad's 81, he has never been acknowledged, his service to the party and to the environment has never been acknowledged. This is the one thing I can do for him and I'm jolly well going to go and do it and I don't care what people say. That's not the one thing you can do for him. And I Buy him a box of chocolates, take him on a nice holiday, take him for a meal out. That's how most people express gratitude to their parents. Not that, I mean, from, from what we've talked about, it doesn't seem like he deserves much, to be honest. But the idea that the only way he can show his appreciation to his father is to knight him. Like, you know, the privilege just oozes out of her body as she's saying it. Um, luckily, she's, she's right. People will say bad things about it. Um, let's look at this YouGov poll. I like this one. Do you think Stanley Johnson should or should not receive a knighthood? Should, 4%, should not... 52%. Given the amount of kids the Johnsons tend to have, that 4% could all be relatives. Let's wrap up there. Thanks, Nihal, for joining me this evening. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Michael. And let's wrap up. Thank you for watching. We'll be back tomorrow at 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.